Have you ever experienced a ruptured relationship with someone because of something you said or did? I'm guessing all of us, to one degree or another, in this room, have. And when we find ourselves in such moments, sometimes it's difficult to find a path toward restoring that relationship. After all, words were spoken that can't be taken back. Things done that can't be undone. Trust is often broken. And to top it off, there's often much anger from the person we offended. So what do we do in such moments? Is there a path for return and restoration? Well, this was the situation that the Israelites found themselves in in Zechariah 1. And by looking at their situation, we ourselves can find a path forward, both with God and one another. The Israelites had messed up over and over and over again. They had made a mess of their relationship with God. And as a result, they faced a serious problem as we come to this text. They faced the anger of God. They faced the righteous fury for their sins. Though God had redeemed the Israelites numerous times and has saved them from their enemies over and over and over again, the people of God would fall back into their wayward ways. Instead of worshiping God who redeemed them, they worshiped the pagan gods of the other nations that persecuted them. Instead of keeping covenant with the gracious God of Israel, they broke it. They did not obey him or listen. And because of this, God's anger would be released upon them as he allows the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and scatter them all across the globe. And Israel would remain scattered for 70 years in exile for their sins against God. But in a sudden turn of events, hope returned when their persecutors were suddenly overthrown by Persia. And in the overthrow of Babylon, the Jews returned to the land in hopes of rebuilding their cities and the temple. But every time they took a step forward in rebuilding their city and temple, their work was put on hold. And this would happen time after time after time as they would be raided by their enemies or receive threats from Gentile nations. And as a result, the temple and the city would be put on pause for over 20 years after returning to the land. And the people would be broken, despondent, devastated, and without hope. Though they had returned to the land, it seemed that God had not returned to them. It seemed that God's anger still burned furiously against them. And so it's at this time that God's word comes to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah, we're told, is the son of Berechiah and the son of Edo, which, to put simply, is his father and his grandfather. It's a way of specifying that it's this Zechariah among the many of, that, uh, the, many of the day that God's word came. And what does God say to Zechariah? The first thing we're told in our text is that God was extremely angry with his ancestors. He was angry with the Israelites. Why? Because as verse 4 tells us, they did not turn from their evil ways or their evil deeds. They did not listen or pay attention to God. They disobeyed blatantly and they reaped 
the repercussions for doing so. So this is what is emphasized in the opening of a text, and that is God's righteous anger and fury toward unrepentant sin. Now, when we talk about sin, what are we exactly talking about? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world that he created. Sin is to rebel against him by living without thought of him and by not being or doing what he requires in his law. And this is what the Israelites did that spurned God's anger. Now, sometimes it can be hard for all of us, I think, in this room to really understand why is God so angry with sin? I mean, is it really that big of a deal? Yes, it is. Especially when we look at sin in the way God does. For sin, like a parasite, sucks the life out of all that is good. It contaminates and infects everything that it touches. It brings calamity and destruction where it is allowed to linger, and it ends up distorting and ruining God's good creation ever since the beginning. Sin, like cancer, contaminates and spreads like a plague. While initially it might seem harmless and not that big of a deal, since we don't feel its effect upon us, it will eventually bring death if we continue on in it. Sin, if fed like a cute little lion club, will eventually grow and grow and grow into a man-eating lion. And it will devour us whole one day without warning. So we must not coddle it, excuse it, or seek to justify it. Sin is serious because it is ultimately what separates us from our life-giving God. And those who continue in sin cannot be with God, for he is holy and just. He cannot allow sin into his presence. And so by being cut off from the source of life, we ourselves die eternally. So in love, God lets Zechariah know of his righteous anger and fury toward the sins of their fathers. And he does this because it shows us how deadly and dangerous sin is. His righteous anger warns us, don't go down that road, or you yourself will be destroyed by it in the end. So his anger is meant to move us and them toward a solution. And what solution is that? The solution found in returning to God. Return to me, God says, and I, the source of true life and hope, will return to you. So this is the solution and the call upon all of us today. Return to God wholeheartedly, fully, and completely. So how do we do this? Zechariah calls the Israelites and us to return to God primarily through repentance. What is repentance? Repentance involves many things, but as the text before us emphasizes, it is primarily about turning from sin to God in obedience. It involves having a change of mind about sin, that it does not benefit you, but is actually destructive. It is wrong. It is ugly. It is horrendous. And so this is what God is trying to get his people to see in our text. 
even as he asks some rhetorical questions in verse 6. Where are your ancestors? Dead and gone. They perished in exile because they failed to repent of their sins. And where are the prophets? The answer, they're also dead and gone as well. And with that, the opportunity for repentance has expired. And did not my word overtake them? Didn't what I say come to pass? Yes, every word of God, what he said to them, came to pass. So what gain did their ancestors have in continuing down the path of sin and rebellion? Nothing at all. It brought great devastation upon them in the end. And so Zechariah calls the people to turn from the sins of their ancestors and not make the same mistakes. Turn instead to God's life-giving word, which does not fail. Trust God's word to give you life and not the false hopes offered to you in this world. So this is what Israel was called to do and what we are called to do as well. We are called to turn from sin to God's word for life. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this is far easier said than done, right? I mean, it's not easy to do this. And thankfully, the Bible gives us a realistic picture of this difficulty. As we look at Israel's history, they struggled intensely with repenting of their sins, even when they saw his miraculous works firsthand. And there were at least two sins that they often committed over and over and over again that I think we ourselves do too. First, they committed the sin of trusting in people and things for salvation. Rather than trust God and hope in him for salvation, they often found themselves looking to the false hope of Egypt and other nations and other things. And in so doing, God calls them out in Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who depend on horses. They trust in the abundance of chariots and in large numbers of horsemen. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel. Rather than trust in God and his word for salvation, they trusted in Egypt and their weapons of war to deliver them from Assyria, which is highly ironic. After all, God delivered Israel from Egypt in their past. He provided Israel deliverance from these people, and they all knew it. But rather than go to God, the one who delivered them from Egypt, they go to Egypt? Talk about adding insult to injury. And yet, just like the Israelites, we often do the same thing in numerous ways. Though God has delivered us from our slave master's sin, we often choose to go back to our sins, looking for salvation and life in sin. We do this by going outside of God's will or by looking to people or things rather than to God himself. And by doing so, we minimize the power of God. We basically say, God, you can't do anything about my situation, so you're not my, worth my time. I'm going over here. Now, let me be clear. While it's always wrong to sin, there's nothing wrong with looking to get help from people or things. 
However, it is wrong when we look to people and things for salvation without any regard for God, even as the Israelites did. It's wrong to act as if God is no part of the equation in helping you, when in reality, he is the biggest part for all of us in this room. So when encountering problems in your life, is God the first person that you go to with your issues? When you have conflict, whether marital or with other people, is your first instinct to go to God in prayer and to ask for his help and deliverance? Or do you instead rely on your own willpower without any regard for God? How about when you face illness, when you're tired, fatigued, stressed out of your mind? Do you call on God for help? Do you cast your cares upon him in these dire moments? Or do you instead vent about it to another person without thought for God? And how about those of us who are trying to help other people? Do we functionally try to save people in our own strength and deliver them with our wisdom and ingenuity? Or do we first go to God in prayer, who is our ultimate Savior? I think more often than we care to admit, we forget. We forget to remember God, who is the most crucial part of all of our lives. And by failing to do so, we dishonor him. So the Israelites needed then to turn from the sin of trusting in people and things for salvation. But then they also needed to turn from the sin of what I'm calling majoring on the minor and minoring on the major. Now, what do I mean by this? As we look at Israel's history, once more, specifically Judah, there was this idea circling around that the temple located in Jerusalem would keep them safe from their enemies all around them. If they said the right words while being in the presence of the temple of God, it would keep them safe. After all, the temple signified that God was with them and God's people were committed to it. And if God was with them, Jerusalem could never fall. But it was this idea that Jeremiah mocked relentlessly. They were making a big deal on something they did and trusted in while ignoring what really mattered to God. And what truly mattered to God was that his people would turn from their sins, that they would repent of their lack of care and love for the poor and the foreigner, that they would turn from their evil deeds and idolatry to God himself. But the people of Israel missed the heart of God entirely. And like the Israelites, we too can focus too much on the wrong thing. We can make a bigger deal out of something that might be good at the expense of what God truly cares most about. So like the Israelites, we can believe that because we have the Bible, we go to church on Sunday, we sing praises each Sunday, you know, he's cool with us. And that's not wrong, this is true, that's good. But if we are not turning from sin, if we are not genuinely loving others both in this assembly and out of our assembly, if we are not caring for the poor or the foreigners as God calls his people to do, we might be missing the heart of God entirely. And that's a stark warning for each of us. So what about us? Do we actually care about what God cares 
about. As Zechariah will go on to exhort the Israelites later on, do we show faithful love and compassion to one another? Or at the first sign of irritation or hardship, do we lash out against each other and complain? Do we care for the underprivileged and those who have been dealt a bad hand in life? Or are they not even on our radar? How about the foreigners or the sojourners or the poor among us? Those who don't have the advantage of having family around them and support. Do we care about those people? And what about our thoughts? Do we combat evil thoughts and attitudes that come into our minds? Or is our general inclination to assume the worst of others? Do we speak the truth and love to one another even when it's hard? Or do we shy away from it out of fear? What Zechariah basically gets at here is do we actually care about people made in God's image? Or are we doing this just for show? Is our religion actually false religion? My guess is that all of us here, including your pastors, fail to be all that God calls us to be. The truth is we don't care most about what God cares about most. And this list shows us. So in these moments where God reveals our lack of love and care for others, we must repent, turn wholeheartedly back to God. And as we read the rest of verse 6, this is what the Israelites do. Upon hearing God's word, we must repent as they do. We must respond as they do, not by blame shifting, not by excusing our sins, not by minimizing them or self-justifying them, even as Adam and Eve did in the garden, but when confronted with the sins that we commit, we must open our eyes all the more to see if there are sins which we have committed rather than run and hide as Adam and Eve did. And then we must own the sins we've committed and plead for God's forgiveness. And by doing this, we can return to God. We can have a restored relationship with him and others around us. Because as 1 John 1.9 promises, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive all of them. For Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice upon the cross, has taken every sin upon himself, including the righteous anger of God, so that we can return to him. So by returning to God, God then promises to return to his people. What a beautiful thing. As we pick up in verse 7, we learn that a few months have passed since the people have repented of their sins. And it's at this time that God's word comes to Zechariah in the form of eight different visions. And as we covered last week, these are apocalyptic visions in the sense that they are meant to reveal reality as it truly is from God's perspective. They, They pull back the curtain and they show us what God is doing behind the scenes, so to speak. And when we see what God is doing, we can't but help be filled with hope. So what is revealed? 
As this first vision opens up, Zechariah sees a man riding on a chestnut horse, that is a reddish-brownish horse. And as this man rides, he makes his way to the myrtle trees in the valley. Why the myrtle trees? Though we're not entirely sure, we can speculate that the myrtle trees may represent Israel. This man's going to where Israel is because myrtle trees were used in the Feast of Tabernacles, and these trees were often used as picture of messianic blessings that would come to Israel. We think that's why this represents Israel. So this man on the chestnut horse goes to the myrtle trees, and behind him come other men on horses in the colors of chestnut, brown, and white. And then Zechariah asks the question we're all wondering. Who are these men? What's going on? And thankfully, Zechariah has an angel by his side to explain. And the angel says, I will show you what they are. But then interestingly enough, instead of the angel explaining, it's the man among the myrtle trees that speaks up. And he says, these are the messengers that God has sent out to patrol the earth. And so it's here that we begin to understand what this vision is portraying. In that time, Persian scouts and messengers rode on horses. And they would not only act as messengers, but as the king's scouts across the land. They were the king's intelligence agency. And what this vision is communicating is that God has powerful messengers just as the Persian Empire did. He knows all that is taking place across the earth. And what is revealed then is God's sovereignty and omniscience over all things. So we, like them, can take hope in the fact that God is not unaware of what is going on in our world or our life, but he is very aware of everything that is happening to us. He sees and cares deeply. And this becomes all the more evident as the vision continues. The messengers then report back to the angel of the Lord, who is also standing among the myrtle trees. Now, the man that was originally there may, might be the angel of the Lord. We're not entirely sure. But now the angel of the Lord is there. And so the horsemen of God bring a message to the angel of the Lord, saying, we have patrolled the earth, and right now the whole earth is calm and quiet. Now, as we hear this message, again, we might be like, what, what's going on here? As we understand Israel's time period, this vision is likely referring to the peace that was had during the time of Darius's reign. Darius put down many rebellions across the land when he came to power. And as a result, there was peace across the land. But this was not good news for God's people. Because this meant that they were still subjected to foreign empires. Rather than be set free entirely, they were still subjected to Persia. So upon hearing this message, the angel of the Lord goes to Yahweh. He goes to the Lord of armies, and he intercedes for the people of Israel. How long, Lord of armies, will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that you have been angry with these 70 years? And referencing the 70 years of anger, it's important for us to know that he is speaking of Jeremiah's pro uh, prophecy in chapter 25, 11. It's here that Jeremiah declares what will happen to Israel 
because they refuse to turn from their sin. They're going to face destruction and exile and serve Babylon for 70 years. This would be her punishment. But now those 70 years are up and have been up. And so the angel of the Lord intercedes for Israel by reminding God of what he promised to do. And so what does God say in response to this mediator? Interestingly enough, we're not told. We're not told exactly what God says to the angel. All we're told is that God speaks kind and comforting words to the angel of the Lord. And by only telling us this, we learn that God is not indifferent to the hurt his people are experiencing. He loves his children, has not forgotten about them. And he loves the angel who is mediating on behalf of his broken and hurting people. He sees, he knows, he cares. This is God's heart. So after this private conversation, the angel declares what Zechariah is to say. The Lord of armies says, I am extremely jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease. For I was a little angry, but they made the destruction worse. And in this opening statement, there are two things we must not miss. First, God says he is extremely jealous for his people. He is extremely jealous. Sometimes I think we might be tempted to gloss over this fact, but we must not. For God's jealousy is not like our petty, selfish jealousy. Instead, we must understand that God's jealousy is pure, untainted, and righteous. God alone created all things, and so he alone has the right to be jealous for that which he made. But more than this, God's jealousy is not only for himself, but is ultimately for our good. For it is only when we are fully devoted to God that we find wholeness and completeness. So his jealousy leads to our good. God's jealousy here is also an indicator of his great and measurable love for his people. So great is God's love for us. He cannot be indifferent if they spurn him by disobedience or carelessness. For example, God's jealousy is like that of a husband for his wife who have committed to each other in marriage, in covenant union. And if the husband is okay with another guy flirting with his wife, or if he's okay with his wife sleeping around with other men, what are we going to say about that man? We're going to say he must not love her all that much. And so God's righteous jealousy steps in and says, that is not okay. I love you too much to let you go to other harmful things. And so in response to hearing that God is extremely jealous for his people, know that he is jealous for you. He desires your affection fully and completely. He desires all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might. He desires that you return to him with everything that you are and that you keep nothing back. 
And he desires this because he loves you. And he wants what is best for you. So we must not miss God's extreme jealousy for his people. But we must also not miss his anger against injustice. Whereas before God was angry with his people for continuing in sin unrepentantly, now he is furious with the same nations who persecuted his people in verse 15. And why is he furious with them? Because they overstepped in their punishment of Israel. God granted these pagan nations, specifically Babylon, the right to discipline his people because they walked in disobedience. In this way, he would allow his people to feel the effects of sin and turn back to him. But these pagan nations went way beyond what God desired. They inflicted far more pain than they were supposed to, and as a result, God sees and he knows and he hates it. So God sees the injustice and the horrors that are happening, and he deeply cares. He is moving to do something about it. What is it he's going to do? Verses 16 and 17. This is what the Lord says. And mercy I have returned to Jerusalem. My house will be rebuilt within it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And a measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. That is, building plans for the city will take place. It will happen. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord of armies says. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will once more comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And just as God promised so, many of these promises are already fulfilled. God would fulfill the promise to build the city again and the temple within a few years of this vision. But most significantly, God would return to his people. Don't miss that. He will return to his people. And he would return to them, not because they deserve it, not because they earned it, but because he is merciful. And this is what we all need more than anything else in the world. We need God's return to us. And he has in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus would come in the flesh to save his people from the greatest enemy there ever was, sin and death. Jesus would conquer these enemies not through the sword, but through the giving up of his life in our place. And by giving up his life on the cross, he would bear the full anger and wrath of God due to our sins against him. And he would do this so that you and I could return to God. Jesus would come to us so that we could go to him. So if you are in Christ this morning, praise God. He has returned to you in part. And if not, know that God greatly desires you to return to him. And he paid the ultimate price to make that happen. He paid with the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. So let us return to God wholeheartedly then, repenting of known sin and helping one another in this effort as we realize that Jesus died to save us from sins. And may the Lord return quickly again 
so that we might find fullness of redemption. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you humbled. When we look at our lives, when we evaluate our thoughts, attitudes, and deeds, we know that we are sinners. And yet, rather than acknowledging this fact, fact, Lord, we run away. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we blame shift. We excuse, we minimize our sins. And this is wrong. Lord, may we instead bring our sin to the light, repenting of it, turning from it, seeing it as horrible as you do. And in repentance, may we find assurance of pardon that you, Jesus, by the blood, have cleansed us from all unrighteousness. May our church grow in repentance and may we continually walk in repentance until we see you, Jesus, face to face at your return. So we ask, Christ, that you would return to us, return to us again in fullness of glory and power. And may we, your people, your bride, be ready for it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.